October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Episode 37, Down Under, Part 1. Last time, we finished up our two-part series on work in the American South, and especially Edson White's journeys on his steamboat down the Mississippi. We met Louis Sheaf and Charles Kinney, and the other gifted founders of Black Adventism who were building such a marvelous future out of such a perilous past. And all the while, Ellen White was cheering on the work from the sidelines. And by sidelines, I mean Australia. So let's back up a few years and talk about Ellen White in Australia. I want you to listen to Ellen White's itinerary as she embarked on her voyage to Australia from San Francisco. Let's just pretend we're on the prices right or something, and Drew Carey is pitching you on your dream vacation. You'll fly, or in this case, sail, right, out of San Francisco, where you'll board a lovely steamship on a seven-day voyage to Honolulu, Hawaii. After you do some shopping and sightseeing, you'll continue on for another seven-day cruise to the beautiful island of Samoa, where, if you're lucky, you might dock next to the Adventist missionary ship, the Pitcairn. Arriving at Samoa is always a treat, by the way, and by treat, I don't mean those Girl Scout cookies in America that used to be called Samoas. Those were the best, man. No, traveling to the island of Samoa was a treat, even though there was no dock for the ship, because the locals would have to jump out onto their canoes and boats and bring you ashore, offering fresh pineapples, mangoes, coconuts, and other exotic fruits you don't even know the name of. The next leg of your trip is to New Zealand, where sheep still outnumber people and hobbits live in the hills. And finally, at long last, you'll arrive in beautiful Sydney Harbor, home of the majestic opera house that will not be built for another 50 years. That was Ellen White's journey. It took nearly a month, but man, what a lovely month that sounds like. Can you imagine Ellen White getting some much-needed relaxation on the upper deck, just chilling in the sun? Well, if you can imagine that, then stop, because that's not what she did. She did relax some, but she also wrote 150 pages on this trip, all the while complaining that she hadn't been able to finish 300 pages. So, the next time you choose to watch a movie on your flight, remember Ellen White. And this is part of the reason she didn't want to go to Australia in the first place. She had just wanted to get some writing done at her quiet home in California, Not some wild and tropical paradise in the South Pacific. No, it does seem that Ellen White appreciated the beauty of Hawaii and all her travels aboard the SS Alameda. She painted the Hawaiian beaches and mountains with words sent to the review. Really a wonderful job. She marveled even at crossing the international dateline and jumping straight from a Monday to Wednesday. But her best description, her absolute best description, I must say, is of the men of Samoa. She wrote down her thoughts in a letter to the General Conference president, which she never published, but it's been a long time and we can read these things and talk about them now. Here is what she wrote. Quote, The natives are in all kinds of dress. Some are entirely naked, with the exception of a couple of yards of calico pinned about their loins. Their limbs, arms, and body are elaborately tattooed. They are men of muscle. End quote. In another place, Ellen White wrote, quote, The natives are physically well-developed and are said to have the finest physique 
of any of the South Sea peoples. They are of a light brown color. Most of them are destitute of clothing, except a cloth or mat about the loins. Many are elaborately tattooed. End quote. Mm-hmm. Ellen White always seemed to have fun in Samoa. On her way back to America, when she was finally done with Australia, she stopped in Samoa again. And once again, the locals came to get Ellen and her entourage in their canoes, half-naked, and they carried Ellen White ashore, and she sat on a rock and waited for the rest of her entourage to be brought ashore. And I'll let uh, Willie White's wife tell the story in her own words. Quote, the natives of Samoa, you know, were hefty fellows who didn't wear too many clothes. Two of the men clasped their hands together, making a chair with their arms, and carried Mother White to the beach, where she sat on a large rock. Another man took my four-month-old daughter, Grace, in his arms and held an umbrella over her to shelter her from the sun. Then he motioned for me to get on his back. So I scrambled onto his back and wrapped my arms and legs around him, and off we went. Mother White laughed so hard at this sight that she couldn't stop. She laughed until she fell off the rock. End quote. Both Ellen and her daughter-in-law couldn't help but notice how few clothes the locals wore, and the scene of this big, tanned, shirtless man carrying a little baby and an umbrella in his arms, while a terrified Victorian woman in a big dress clung onto his back, was just too much for Ellen White to bear with a straight face. Awesome. I wish I could have been there. Now, I know what you're thinking. Matthew, can the church send me to be a missionary to Australia? What do I have to do? Answer, criticize the general conference enough, and they'll send you as far away as they can. Okay, I'm just kidding. Nice try. When Ellen White eventually arrived in Australia after her month-long voyage, Australia, as we know it, didn't exist. It was just a collection of British colonies, a tumultuous, aspiring, struggling collection of British colonies. The political hot potato in those days was whether or not those colonies should merge into a new nation a la America. And that hot potato posed the same problems in Australia that it did when it was held by a handful of American colonies a hundred years before. Who gets the power? How strong should our federation be? What kind of government should we have? The question on nationhood was punctuated by severe social and economic problems throughout the 1890s. Australia had been the world's frontier. Australian colonists found gold in their homeland around the same time Americans found gold in California, setting off a kind of global gold rush to Australia. One estimate suggests that a full 2% of English citizens left their homeland and moved to Australia, not to mention the other Europeans and Chinese who rushed to take a bite out of the gold rush. So Australia was thriving in the 1880s. Australian wool was hot, and it spurred a huge industrial buildup of railroads, factories, you get the idea. So wool money helped pay for these expensive public projects, and by a show of hands, what do you think is going to happen when demand for Australian wool crashes? Anyone? So by the time that Ellen White arrived a decade later, huge amounts of social unrest, workers were on strike, banks were closing, there was a drought, sheep died. The sheep people, the sheep died. And into this mess stepped a 64-year-old woman and her entourage. But she didn't step into Australia alone. Like I said, she had her entourage, which meant Willie White and her secretaries to help her with her writing. But there was also an advanced team on the ground. 
Adventists had been working in Australia since 1885 under the leadership of Stephen Haskell. Now, let me just say that I fully recognize that Haskell has gotten the short end of our narrative stick. Haskell was one of the church's first preachers, and his energy and accomplishments were right up there with John Loughborough and others. I offer no excuse for not saying more about him, except that it's Haskell's fault. Really, he just rarely intersects with the story that we've been telling. We always seem to just miss him. So when we were talking about James White's death and the 1888 controversy that was brewing, Haskell was in Europe. And then when we start talking about Ellen White going to Europe, he was in Australia. He was in Minneapolis in 1888, but he kind of stayed out of the headlines. And when we started talking about the aftermath of 1888, Haskell had gone to South Africa, India, China, Japan. We always just seemed to miss Haskell. But you know what? We're finally, finally going to miss him again because he's not there. Because as Ellen White arrives in Australia, Haskell is back in California. I mean, come on, man. Who wrote this script anyway? Who's directing this Adventist story? God God did? Okay, well, I'm sure we'll catch up with Haskell when he comes back to Australia, right? I mean, he's got to propose to Ellen White. Oh, we'll talk about that later. With Haskell gone, there was a leadership vacuum in Australia. To make matters worse, the conference headquarters and the publishing house were all a mess. Everything was losing money, the people were inefficient, pastors in the field were languishing. And when Ellen White stepped into this printing office, she realized that she recognized it. She had seen this whole room in a vision back in 1875. She didn't know where it was, she didn't know any of the people in the room per se, but she recognized them all. She went around the room, noting where some of these men had failed. And just like that, the work in Australia had new energy. Now that might seem a little strange to us today, I mean, who gets excited when they're told that they're wrong? Well, Ellen did a lot of rebuking in her day, and it kind of makes her seem like a grim, mean old woman. But let me just say this. You can judge the spirit of her rebukes by its effect. The men in that room didn't stumble out, hat in hand, defeated. They didn't mope or walk away resentful like their mom just yelled at them. They walked away refreshed. Why? Because they recognized in Ellen White's rebuke the words of Jesus to them, words which removed an obstacle from their path. Sometimes our sins need to be named, need to be pointed out. Ellen White wrote about this meeting in her diary. She said, quote, Brother Curtis made a heartfelt confession. He humbled himself as a little child. He wept aloud and confessed that he had not the Spirit of the Lord in his preaching. End quote. Another man confessed that he had been jealous of another person. They all cleared the air with each other and owned up to how they had mistreated one another or how they had felt envious or jealous or whatever of each other. Or, as Ellen put it, quote, the brethren confessed to one another and fell on one another's necks, weeping and asking forgiveness, end quote. Sometimes we just find ourselves trapped when we work with people or go to church with people for a long time. Invisible walls are built up between people. Someone says something we don't like, or there's a miscommunication or something, and we feel ourselves pulling away from that person. And often the other person notices it too. You suddenly aren't as close as you used to be. But neither of you knows how to bridge the gap. Well, Seventh-day Adventists see Ellen White as a prophet. And to most people out there, a prophet is somebody who predicts the future or who does these big audacious things. Ellen White did some of that, 
But that wasn't where her real value was to the church. Her value was in moments like these, in a room full of people who were all twisted up in jealousy and envy and frustration and doubt, and she'd come in and look at them and know them somehow and see through their smile and their nice clothes and point at exactly the spot in their souls where they were going wrong. And for honest, humble, sincere people, that's liberating. Deep down inside, they want to be free but they didn't know how to get out of their own mess. And cleaning up messes was Ellen White's first order of business. Sure, she attended meetings where she learned that the business side of the publishing industry was going terribly. She, she learned that there was no direction, no strategy. And the way she put it was that there was no wise generalship at work here. No wise generalship. So the problem was that there was no ideal candidates to be general. So Ellen gathered the delegates together, laid out the pros and cons of each candidate, and then she suggested a man named Arthur G. Daniels, and he should be president. As long as he has help from Willie White, he agreed, the delegates agreed. Daniels was a 33-year-old American from northeastern Iowa, where it wasn't long before Adventist preachers found his mom. His dad had been off at the Civil War, never to return home. And mom would find a new husband in time, and young Arthur would find the truth. He was baptized by George Ida Butler, then Iowa Conference President. And Butler would go on to become, of course, the General Conference President, getting all tangled up in 1888. Now Daniels, too, will someday become a General Conference President. In fact, the last one that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. And he wouldn't be just any General Conference President, but the longest-serving President in Adventist history— by a long shot. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little, aren't we? So Arthur and Mary Daniels left Iowa for San Francisco in 1886. They boarded the Alameda, the same ship that would take Ellen White to Australia five years later. And Daniels initially went to New Zealand, where he met Stephen Haskell's strongest converts, the Hare family. Now the story goes that when Haskell was on his scouting mission to New Zealand, he was directed to stay in a boarding house run by Edward Hare. Apparently, Hare and Haskell hit it off. Hare believed that Jesus was coming soon, so that's neat. Haskell went, got settled in in his room, unpacked, and then began to pray, because here he is in a country he's never been to before, he doesn't know anybody in this country, and yet he's responsible for, I don't know, beginning Adventism in this place. So, what better thing to do than to pray? He prayed for the great work to be done in Australia and New Zealand, and he prayed for his new friend Edward Hare, his host. But Haskell prayed too loud. The walls were thin in the boarding house, and the man staying nearby cried out for Edward Hare, declaring that he wouldn't be staying one more night if he had the room next to a crazy person who talked to himself. So Edward Hare, trying to put out the fire, hurried upstairs, listened at Haskell's door to see if he really was crazy, and he wasn't. The prayer he heard startled Edward Hare. This is what Haskell prayed. Dear Lord, he's such a good man. He already believes in thy soon coming. Help me to present the Sabbath to him so that he will accept that too. Well, Edward Hare finished listening. He ran downstairs to his wife, and he was genuinely shocked that this perfect stranger would be praying for him. And he took the initiative of asking Haskell to join him at a Bible study group he just happened to be attending. And this Bible study group was an odd lot. They were 
independent of any denomination, just kind of coming together and, and, and wanting to learn some new things. And Hare thought, well, maybe Haskell has something to say. But Haskell politely declined. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Haskell totally did a Joseph Bates on them, and Edward Hare and his wife were on board in short order. So Hare then took Haskell to come talk to his father and Edward Hare's 23 other siblings. 23 people that they eventually had. 23 kids! Did I mention that their last name is Hare? Like H-A-R-E? Like the rabbit? Well, the name fits. The elder Hare, Joseph, was a Methodist preacher. And when Haskell arrived with Edward, Joseph was kind enough to let Haskell have his pulpit that Sunday. Haskell preached on Daniel 2, a pretty standard Adventist sermon, and it went well. But then Haskell crossed the line when he preached again on Daniel 7 and the Sabbath and all of that. Joseph decided to set Haskell straight. Word went out to several of the Hare kids that Dad was about to lead a smackdown on this upstart American Adventist preacher, and so they showed up Bible in hand. What followed could only be described as a battle between Jedi. Joseph shot arguments like lasers at Haskell, who deflected them with his lightsaber of truth, or whatever. When Joseph ran out of lasers, Haskell finally countered. When the clock struck midnight, everyone was still wide awake. Fingers raced across the Bible, first one way and then the other, back and forth, Old Testament and then New Testament, red words and black words. About two o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, people, Joseph Hare gave up. Elder Haskell, he said, By the grace of God, next Saturday I am going to do what I thought I had been doing all my life. I am going to keep the Sabbath of God holy. All the Hare children present began to follow suit, closing their businesses on Sabbath. Now the one downside was that one of the sons, Robert, had told his fiancée all about the Sabbath in a letter. She replied, by sending her engagement ring back, telling him to choose between her and this Jewish Sabbath. Now, the most famous member of the Hare family wasn't even born yet. We're talking about Eric B. Hare. He would arrive in 1894 and would become Adventist famous, at least, for his collections of mission stories. Eric would be a brilliant storyteller and his stories would become a staple of Adventist Sabbath schools and children's stories all over the world. You can even get on YouTube and hear some of his recordings. Anyways, so Arthur Daniels became president of the Australian Conference. Daniels described his growth as a leader under Ellen and Willie White's guidance as a very painful process. No one likes hearing where they're wrong, but he grew, as he put it, inch by inch. This was leadership development, and Daniels, to his credit, had the humility to endure it, and it would be worth it for him in the end. So with leadership in Australia slowly improving, Ellen White turned toward the whole reason she didn't want to go to Australia in the first place, the piles of writing projects on her desk. Now, One of her most popular books, then and now, Steps to Christ, had been selling like crazy in America. Now, ironically, Steps to Christ was published by Fleming H. Ravel, who was the brother-in-law of the great preacher Dwight Moody, and Ravel prided himself on offering a variety of Christian books, and Ellen White's little primer on knowing Jesus fit the bill. It sold like crazy, 
embittering some of the Adventist publishers. You know, why didn't you publish that with us? So, while the church would eventually get the rights back, Ellen White wasn't sorry. She defended her decision to publish with a non-Adventist on the ground that Ravel sent her more money than the Adventists did, and she was inclined to send him more books to publish. Any questions? No? All right, then. Well, in the decade that followed the storm of 1888, Ellen White's writings focused more and more on knowing Jesus, hence Steps to Christ, to be followed by Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, which is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, in 1896, followed by The Desire of Ages in 1898, which is a much bigger book on the life of Jesus, and finally Christ's Object Lessons in 1900, which covered Jesus' parables. Ellen White's writings were a course correction to balance the church's spiritual life out. Now, I mentioned how Ravel gave Ellen a bigger cut of the revenue. Ellen wasn't greedy, but so when a Bible study school uh, was proposed in Australia a few months after she arrived, she used $1,000 of her royalties, which was nearly all she had, in order to support it. One time, someone sent her $45 and said, hey, Ellen, buy a comfortable chair to ride in. But she used the money instead to help an Australian church be built. Ellen's relation with her Adventist publishers in America would be a source of constant stress and frustration. She would often feel that the Review and Herald Publishing Association wasn't promoting her books like they should, or they were slow in sending checks, or what have you. And she needed every dollar she could get from America. The work in America was maturing and prosperous, and the men in charge failed to appreciate that the work in Australia was very much like stepping back into the work in America in the 1850s, back when personal sacrifice was the watchword of the movement, back when every dollar had to be stretched. Oh, and we mentioned that Australia was going through a recession, right? Ellen White's vision for a Bible training school prevailed simply because she fought so tenaciously for it. She was one of the largest donors, leading by example, which encouraged others to give. And when others were indifferent or pessimistic about its prospects, she was the voice of optimism in Australia for it. I mean, she just manhandled this opportunity. Can we just stop and marvel at a 60-something-year-old American woman with a third-grade education who's working as a high-functioning project manager, entrepreneur, and investor? Okay, okay. Well, we need to keep moving here. So let me just say that one of the upsides of this Australian Bible training school is that Willie White got married. Now, Willie White had been married for 14 years to Mary White, but Mary passed away in 1890 after contracting what was probably tuberculosis from her time in Switzerland, much like J.N. Andrews. Well, when Willie went to Australia the following year, he left his two girls behind in Battle Creek. He was following in the White family tradition. Hadn't James and Ellen left him and Edson with friends while they traveled and preached? But by 1895, he sent for his kids to join him in Australia. We need to be careful about being too hard on these hardy pioneers. World travel was very risky, especially when you're talking about a radically different climate. It was common, for instance, for British citizens in India to send their kids back to England for school in order to keep them from getting any number of tropical illnesses, but especially malaria. And one of those kids, by the way, was named May Lacey, whose father was an English official in India. At three and a half years old, she was sent back to England. And eventually the whole family left India, 
everyone reunited in Tasmania, an island just off mainland Australia. And it was in Tasmania that May Lacey found a copy of Uriah Smith's book on Daniel and Revelation at some Adventist tent meetings. The Lacey family was baptized, and May's mom, unfortunately, was to die of tuberculosis in 1891, just shortly before Ellen and Willie White arrived. But that did also mean that she and Willie might have something in common, however sad it may be, if we could ever get them in the same room together. So how do we get them in the same room together? Well, I think that the 1894 Bible School in Sydney will do. May really wanted to go, so she asked her friends and family to help her. They did, and there she met Willie, who was impressed by her nearly perfect pastor's wife credentials. She sang, she played the piano, and the organ. So that qualifies her, right? Willie made the first move, naturally. Gilbert Valentine tells the story of how he schemed his way into her heart, a time-honored tradition, might I add. Willie began by suggesting that May fill a job opening by being an assistant to his mother, Ellen. Well, this way he could get his mother's thoughts on her. So May, thinking little of it, she just honestly looked at it as a job, went to go work for Ellen. I mean, she needed money, right? Wanted to do her part for the cause. Ellen White and May grew to love each other. May certainly missed her own mother, and she looked at Ellen White as her mother. She even called her mother for the rest of her life. And then Willie came by, about four months later. He helped May with some chores before asking to speak with her alone. Valentine describes this as sounding like a business interview when Willie interviewed May about her life goals. May said she wanted to be a matron of a school. Hearing that, Willie had a counteroffer. How would you like to be the matron of a private home? Hmm? Now, Willie, buddy, I, I just don't know what to tell you about this, man. It, it, it's just problematic on so many levels, and it doesn't do well in the 21st century. Guys, I just need to add this here. Don't do this on your first date. Hey, so what do you want to do in life? Oh, I want to be the CEO of a company. Well, how would you like to be the CEO of my home? No, not not an upgrade. Definitely not an upgrade. I mean, it's almost smooth, but no. It was a different time back then, so give Willie a break. I'm sure he'll improve, right? Well, after wondering if May wanted to be the matron of a house, Willie noted that his kids didn't have a mother. That's right. He played the kids card with dead wife card. Finally, he invited May to consider coming and being with them, which I guess was his circuitous way of proposing. Oh, it just makes me cringe. Willie, I can't do it, man. Just so so terrible. So terrible. May thought it was some kind of terrible, too. She was, in fact, completely shocked. She didn't even know that Willie liked her, and he certainly had never said that he loved her. May then diplomatically suggested another woman who worked with Ellen. How about her, Willie? She really likes you. No, said Willie, it has to be you. Why does it have to be me? Willie says, I keep praying about this and you're the one that comes to mind. Now, right now, there are some nurses or teachers remembering life at their Adventist college because chances are a theology major pretty much used those same words on them. And I just want to apologize on behalf of all theology majors. I'm not going to say I did that when I was a theology major, 
but I did join Nursing Club. Anyway, this isn't about me, okay? I just think after I'm done recording these episodes, I have some people to call and apologize to. Back to the story. May May bought some time. She had tried to pawn Willie off on another girl who liked him. He didn't buy it, so she said she needed some time. She had to pray about it. The problem was that she actually loved another guy named Arthur Currow, and she was waiting for him to propose any day. Now, Arthur, hurry up, Arthur. But he was just oblivious. I mean, bro, make your move, man. Before it's too late, hurry. Of course, Willie didn't know about Arthur, and it doesn't seem like Arthur knew about Willie. But it was too late for Arthur, because Ellen was Willie's champion, As Ellen and May lived together, Ellen would gently prod and suggest and do those things that mothers are very good at. Finally, about a month later, May agreed to marry Willie. Her affections for the oblivious Arthur had begun to fade, and while she didn't love Willie yet, she did like him a lot. I mean, he's a nice guy, so why not? Ellen White was beside herself with joy. Arthur Curl was also beside himself, but not with joy. This dude had the head start. He had the inside lane. But how do you compete with Willie White, who was by then the union president for this area, who had a profit for a mother? And as for the other girl in Ellen's employment who was in love with Willie, she was heartbroken. When she heard the news, she said that she wasn't feeling well and went back to her room and then shortly would leave Australia, go to America, and get married. And then finally, there was a third person who was heartbroken in this story, and that is the woman who was watching over Willie's kids back in Battle Creek, who was secretly in love with him, or not so secretly, and subsequently heartbroken. She thought that maybe watching Willie's kids, they might come to see her as a mom, and oh, yeah, that just didn't work out. Sorry. Who would have guessed that the completely and hopelessly unsmooth Willie White was such a heartbreaker? Willie was 40, and May was just 21. So, you know. They were married by a Methodist preacher in Tasmania, because there were apparently no Adventist preachers nearby who could do this. Ellen gave a prayer, and May put on her ring, and voila, marriage for the newlyweds had begun. It was challenging. I mean, they didn't have the momentum of love, and though they did learn to love each other, I should add. Willie was often gone, and Ellen White was, well, the matriarch of the family. In fact, <laughs> funny story, Ellen actually named... May's twins, twin boys that she gave birth to shortly. She named them James, Henry, and Herbert Clarence. And if those names sound familiar, it's because those are names from Ellen's other kids. and Of course, James from her husband. As May put it diplomatically later on, in those four names, she got the names of her husband and all her boys. Well, when May gave birth to a third son in 1907, May named him Arthur. And I don't think anybody knew why, but Arthur Currow did. And when Willie died decades later, Arthur Currow was finally ready to make his move. He finally married May Lacey 60 years later. So I guess good things come to those who wait.
Well, this was uh, an episode that was all over the place, I guess, about Australia. Though, you know, we, we didn't talk a lot about what was happening in Australia. But here's what we got. Ellen White cleaned up the mess. She provided wise generalship. Arthur G. Daniels became the conference president. The Hare family became the most helpful converts. Willie found a woman somehow. And that's just the first few years in Australia. We're just following the Adventist playbook, right? Churches, schools, hospitals. Well, we got some of those things done in this episode. So I guess we'll have a little bit more to cover then next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.